0: open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 again. Romans 8. Lord willing, we are going to finish this chapter today, and I have to tell you that I feel a little bit like someone who is coming to the end of a school year where you're excited about what's coming next, but you're also looking back and you know how much you're going to miss of what you just experienced. Romans chapter 8. We're going to group all of this together in this final paragraph. Let me put it in our minds for us and read for you Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession or prays for or intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sore, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who... Loved us, for I am convinced, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the joys of pastoral ministry is talking to people. Uh, sometimes it's counsel, sometimes it's discipleship, sometimes it's fellowship. But I love talking to people. I love hearing what the Lord is doing. I love hearing the story of God's uh, work in their lives. But over the last 30 years of talking to people and counseling, there is one subject when people want to talk to their pastor that rises to the surface as the most prevalent, the most common question that people have when they are struggling. This is the singular most uh, pervasive problem, concern, issue that I've been able to talk to people about over the last three decades It's a question that comes up in everybody's mind. It's a question that comes up in your mind. It's a question that's come up before. It will likely be a question that comes up again. Very simply, it's the issue of assurance. It comes in different forms. It could sound like this. Am I really saved? How can I know I'm really saved? Have I Lost my salvation? Can anybody lose their salvation? Sometimes it comes like this. Is my sin too much so that God has finally had enough and turned his back away from me? What is it that threatens assurance in the life of a believer? The assurance that a believer is truly saved and righteous before a holy God. Let's look at that a second. Let's break that down for a second. You can look at your own testimony. You can look at your own life. And these probably are categories that you can find yourself in here and there during the different points on your journey. First of all, there's bad theology. Bad theology can threaten your assurance. If you're not thinking right biblically, you can have all sorts of bizarre thoughts that will attack your mind. Not understanding what God says in the Bible about the promises that he will not forsake those whom he has chosen and loved, if you don't... Understand that if you don't believe that, you're gonna struggle. Philippians six says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, if God brought you into the faith, he will certainly finish you all the way till heaven. John 10.27 and 28. Jesus himself said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. How long does eternity last? A long time. And they will never perish and listen, and no one or nothing will ever snatch them out of my hand. Some people just simply don't believe it. I grew up with a group of people who, who did not believe that when you were truly saved, you stayed that way. Uh, there was this, this uh, holiness kind of movement that if you didn't try hard enough, if you didn't repent enough, if you weren't engaged enough, then God will likely let you drift from him and you'll have to be re-saved. Well, it took years to unwind that from my thinking with just simple passages like we just read. If God began something, he will finish it. Remember what we've already studied in Romans? If he predestined us in, in eternity past, if he chose us back then, and he's gonna glorify us in eternity future, those come together. He will finish what he began. So bad theology can certainly rob you of assurance. Let me, let me tell you. If, if there was ever a, a, a place, if there was ever a way for you and I to lose our salvation, we would. No question, we would all lose our salvation. If it were up to us to keep it, we would be doomed or we'd have to get resaved every day. It's not up to us. And bad theology puts all of our salvation in our court. Another thing that robs us of assurance is sin. Read the book of 1 John, just cover to cover. Read the whole chapter, uh, the, uh, all five chapters, and you'll see that John says over and over if you sin, you don't have assurance. If you sin, this is interesting, you will be convinced that God has stopped loving you. When he says that if anyone anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Right? Sin can rob you of assurance. It cannot rob your salvation, but it can certainly rob you of the feeling, the the settled confidence that you are saved. And there's a remedy for that, right? Repent, confess sins. But there's something else. And I think really this is probably at the heart of why most believers who are honest and sincere about their faith struggle. And I think that's what Paul addresses most in this chapter. it's just simply a lack of faith we just get weary, we get doubtful, we get disconcerned, we drift from daily Bible reading, we drift from prayer, and we we begin losing the confidence that God really loves us. Paul understood that, and so in this last paragraph of Romans 8, after all of the glories of God's work in the Spirit, in His Spirit, on us, through us, to us, by us, At the end, he says, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure that no no matter what happens, no matter what comes into your life, no matter who does what, that you have the settled confidence that God will finish what he started. That salvation is all by grace, all through faith, and it's not dependent on us. Therefore, our confidence rests in him. You know, before we go on, I have to say there's one more. Some people doubt their salvation because they're not saved. (laughs) It's a good reason to doubt and if you have those questions, please talk to your care group leader, talk to one of the pastors. We would love to discuss that with you. Well, let's go uh, and review a little bit, and we're going to dial into a fifth question today and add to our other four. We're looking at five questions to answer for a Christian's Unquestioned assurance. And the reason it's unquestioned is these are a list of questions that that Paul comes to at the end of this chapter. There are seven of them, and he groups two of them together. So we're really taking them as five because two are really kind of a repetition of each other. Five questions to answer for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. If you, let me ask it, let me say it this way since you and I, have sometimes struggled with our assurance. This ought to be very familiar territory in your Bible. Mark this, highlight it, underline it, dog ear it. Whatever you need to do to find your way back to this passage, it would be a good roadmap to have. The first question to answer is this If God is for us, who is against us? And this groups together the two questions of verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? Follows the question, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? And we've noted that these things are in verses 29 to 30. We've been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. What do we say to that? How do we respond to that? Paul says, if God is for us. That's his summary of those five golden links in, the, in God's golden chain of salvation. What shall we say to those things? That God is for us. That's proof that God began his work in us in eternity past. He'll finish it in eternity future. What do we say to that? God is for us. And if that's true, who is against us? And remember I gave you a little Greek lesson a couple weeks ago. It's the word tis in the Greek, T-I-S. And um, what that means is who or what. It's more elastic than the word we have for who or what in, in, in English. It has more range. So when you see the who here, it can mean who or what. It's a broad spectrum. If God is for us, who or what can come against us? Now, he's going to give us some options in a few minutes down in point five. Secondly, we asked, how will God not freely give us all things with Christ. I love verse 32. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son, that's remarkable because the whole chapter has been about the adoption of believers as children of God. He spared us from wrath, but he did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, that's believers, how will he not also, and don't miss this, with him freely give us all things. It's not that we get everything we want after Christ. It's we get everything we want in Christ. With him comes all that we want and all that we need. How will not God freely give us all things in Christ? Of course he will. If he did the greater thing by sacrificing and not spearing his own son, how will he not give us assurance and blessing and peace and hope? Relationships that honor him. Third question we looked at is who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That brought up this issue of election. We're gonna come back to that strongly here in a few weeks in chapter nine. Literally those whom God has chosen. If God has chosen us, who can unchoose us? That's the point, no one. No one can ever condemn you Based on what God's done, I was talking with a, a friend of mine, my wife and I were actually uh, talking and counseling with a friend uh, a couple of years ago, who was very concerned because there was a group of people around this person saying, there's no way you can be saved. I think they were wrong. What they were doing is saying, you can't be saved based on X and Y, and yet what they were saying in X and Y had nothing to do with the gospel, No matter what anybody brings against you as a charge, if you have believed, if you have repented, if you are a repenter, there is nothing that can stand against you. The fourth question, this is all review, who can condemn us? Then he picks up the statement, God is the one who justifies, that was the first five chapters of Romans. Who is the one who condemns? God has already condemned his son for the, the faith, for the life of those who believe. Who possibly can condemn you if he's taken care of our condemnation? The whole chapter begins with that statement, doesn't it? Romans 8, once, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can condemn you? He says, Christ Jesus is he who died rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? He's alive. He cannot pray for us now if he died and stayed in a grave, then. The resurrection, as we looked at last week, is the foundation for all of our joys, all of our hope, all of our belief, all of our faith. Paul says, if we have not the resurrection, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. Said differently, which takes people a little bit off guard. The cross was not enough to secure our salvation. It was the cross and his resurrection. And that brings us to the fifth question. This is what we'll look at in our final approach here in looking at Romans 8. What or who, who or what can separate us from the love of God? Christ he begins with this question who will separate us from the love of Christ he'll ask another question that functions as the same in just a moment first of all we have to figure out what's being discussed here when he says who will separate us from the love of Christ is he talking about our love for Christ or Christ's love for us well that's a pretty easy thing to figure out Think about it. this whole section is written to provide us assurance of God sticking to us, sticking with us, sticking to his promises it 's not dependent on us. our love wanes, does it not? What did Paul say excuse me? What did John say uh, as a as a messenger from the Lord Jesus himself to the ephesians you 've lost your first love, did that mean they were unsaved no it 's never dependent on our love for Christ if you this is one of those, those tricky parts of assurance that you have to come to grips with. If you're always basing your understanding of assurance on your response to God, you will rarely, if ever, have assurance. We sing it all the time prone to wonder. Lord, I, what does it say? Feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. That's us. The love of Christ here is not about our love for Christ. By the way, that is there uh, back in uh, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. There is a part of our love for God that Paul addresses, not here. Our assurance is not based on our love for the Lord. It's based on his love for us. So to say that we will never be separated from our love for Christ will give us no confidence. We know our hearts way too well. But the reality that Christ's love for us will never fail and always continue, I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will not leave you as orphans, that provides assurance. You know, this is the ultimate question to answer if you want to have your heart assured. If our greatest treasure is Christ's love for us, what could possibly come between him and us? Now, Paul asks this final rhetorical question, which is really a question and a fleshing out of the question with another question in a moment. And he asks it in a way that suggests possible candidates of who or what could separate us from The love of Christ. Let's look at that. Look back at the passage. He says, will, tribulation. Tribulation is a word for strong pressure. It's a general term. It doesn't define the nature of the pressure. It's pressure that can come from People, it's pressure that can come from circumstances. It's pressure that can come from finances. It's pressure that can come from persecution. It's pressure that can come from family. It's just that simple pressure, tribulation, difficulty. Can difficulty separate Christ's love for us? Will, Will Christ look down at our difficult life and say, that's it, I'm done loving them? His answer is no. He goes on to another word, will distress. It's also a general word that holds the... The idea of outward affliction and inward distress. It's a combination of two words outward and inward. So can distress. Now, this is really significant because I think a lot of the times the one who brings most condemnation to our hearts when we're having a lack of assurance is, drumroll, us. And he's saying, can, can your inner distress? separate you from the love of Christ that he has toward you? And the obvious answer implied is no. Persecution. Now, now, just look back at Paul's day for a moment. We'll come to ours in a moment. Paul had the very real threat that when he put down his quill from writing the book of Romans, he would walk out on the street and be tried, possibly executed, certainly beaten, he was beaten so bad at Lystra they drug him out in a ditch and left him as dead. The Holy Spirit promised him. How's how this for a promise? We love the promises of God. The Holy Spirit told Paul, wherever you go and in every city, persecution and beatings and ultimately death awaits you. Thank you, Lord. He understood that, though, as the on-ramp to heaven. Now, persecution in our day is really interesting because we can talk about it in two kind of phases. What we experience now with maybe family members who don't like you or have ostracized you because of the gospel. Matthew 10 says that the gospel came to, as a sword that even divides families sometimes. And you've probably experienced some of that persecution from family members or from people at work and you've been made fun of or your standards have been ridiculed. That's, that's bothersome, It's really tough to call that persecution in terms of what was going on in the book of Acts. Now, I do think that we are on a clear trajectory to the book of Acts again in our country. I think it's coming. I would be surprised if in my lifetime I did not see um, at least legal persecution and if not physical persecution of believers. And do we really think we're any better than those people in Acts? Acts? Isn't that what we should expect? Paul promised, he says, those, he told Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, he doesn't even say you have to be faithful. He just said you have to want to. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in whatever small or large way we should expect it and look for it, and As Peter says, not think of it as any strange thing when it comes, but we also need to be mindful that there are our brothers and sisters with whom we will spend each eternity who are waking up this morning or putting their head on their pillow tonight without the confidence that they will live throughout the next 24-hour period because they know and love Jesus. There is a persecuted church today. We can't just look at this as for us, past or future. We have to look at this as people who are living and under this, this threat Right now. The next word is famine. It can mean famine or simple hunger. Provision is what's going on here. If, if, you, if you're out of a job, if you get laid off, if you, if you get demoted, if your money starts drying up, can that separate you? Will God say, you're not rich enough anymore. You can't even provide for yourself anymore. Therefore, you're not one of my children. He says, famine can't. Hunger can't. Remember who Jesus was instructing when he uh, gave what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer? He said, pray like this. Remember what he said about food? Give us this day our daily bread. We kind of skip across that when we sing it or say it. Do you understand Jesus was speaking to a group of people who might not eat that day? That's such a different place than we are. When have we ever asked God in the morning, feed me or I'll starve? He says, even that can't separate us. Peril is the discomfort that could come from living faithfully, losing jobs, family, status. It's threats. Can threats against us make God and, and, and his son look down and say, no, that's it. I don't love them anymore, no. And then finally, of course, is the sword. Can death, can execution separate us from Christ's love? You know, when you look at this list, if you look back through these things, Paul had experienced every single one of them except this one so far. But in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, I, this is about to happen. I am being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is imminent. It's at hand. And he would lay his head onto a rock and have it severed by a Roman government. Can that separate Paul or us from Christ? You know, there are... There are people in our fellowship who are measuring the remainder of their lives, not in decades, but years. Some not in years, but months. Some not in months, but weeks. And some not in weeks, but days. When we come to that final lap of our life, the devil will whisper, into our ears, you're not ready. You're not good enough. Your life wasn't significant enough. You can't be sure enough. And yet, the writer of the Hebrews says that he frees those who are subject to the fear of death from that fear. And we can look back at our conscience or at the enemy and say, no. My security in Christ is because of Christ's love for me, not my unfaithfulness to him not even the sword can bring a separation. Then look at the footnote that he has here in verse 36. He, he quotes from Psalm 42, 44:22, Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Just like a big herd of sheep and you have a meal coming up and the shepherd goes out and he marks this one and that one and this one and he says these are the ones who the butcher will come and kill them that's the imagery we have been marked out as the ones who will be persecuted who will die he demonstrates by using Psalm 44 that there have always been and will always be opposition to God's people and God's work in the world are you you settled with that are you okay with that to know that there will always be opposition to God's work and God's people in this world or do you believe that we could actually elect enough people that this would look like the kingdom of Jesus 2 Corinthians 4:11 he says for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It is an honorable and sweet thing. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. One commentator says, Barrett says this, suffering and persecution are not mere evils which Christians must expect and endure as best they can. They are the scene of overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. What do we expect? What do we expect? He answers that in verse 37. In all of these things, that list we just looked at, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, win, Through him who loved us. Understand that God's values are upside down to the world's values. He who wishes to gain his life must lose it. He who wishes to live must die. Here, he who looks like he's winning on the outside, on the inside, he looks like he's losing on the outside is actually winning in heaven. As we live life on the cliff of death, we're constantly being considered as sheep that have been marked out for slaughter. However, all these difficulties, he says here, all of these difficulties, we are winning in heaven an overwhelming victory through Jesus who has proven his love for us on the cross. We look like we lose on this earth, and that's to perfect us into the image of Christ. Listen, They didn't love Jesus, God in the flesh. You think they're going to give you man or woman of the year? What do we expect? What are our expectations? Paul is so kind in letting us know here. Listen, let me quell your expectations. It might get worse for you. Not alongside of, but because you're a believer. That's okay. That's okay. You overwhelmingly have conquered because he died for you in heaven. And remember what we learned in 828. Even in all this bad stuff, peril, even the sword, all these pressures, he still works all things for our, what's the word? Good. Robert Mounts, a Greek scholar, says this. Christians are not grim stoics who manage to muddle through somehow. They are victors who have found from experience that God is ever present in their trials and that the love of Christ will empower them to overcome all the obstacles of life. Isn't that good? It's all about his love for us in this passage, and especially in this verse. But there's one more list. It feels, when you're reading it, it feels like he could have put a period there and then gone on to Romans 9. But he didn't. He he takes the plane up. It's almost like we're coming down for contact and he takes it up one more time. Verse 38. For I am convinced. Do you underline things in your Bible? There's a sentence that ought to be highlighted. I am convinced, persuaded, sure. I am convinced. What are you convinced by, Paul? That. And now he gives us another list. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, not powers, not height, not depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 38 at first. I am convinced. It's a simple Greek word. Patho. It means to persuade, to argue, to convince, to bring to a conclusion by reasoned argument. It was used in a in a court of law where the, the, the verdict was finally come to a had finally come to a conclusion. Patho, it was done. I am persuaded. The jury has come back. The verdict is rendered. I am confident. I am convinced. Paul uses the same word in First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, one twelve. For this reason also, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am same word convinced, persuaded. The argument is settled that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. What is he entrusted to him? His soul. He's convinced. The whole thrust of this last paragraph, the whole thrust is to say, become patho. Become convinced. Become persuaded. Become confident. I am convinced. And then he gives us another list. Remember what we said over and over in this book, asking three questions when you get in trouble. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I know? All, something on this list comes up. What do I feel? I feel fearful. I feel afraid. I feel anxious. I feel angry. I feel hurt. What do I think? If you base how you think on how you felt, you're going to be in trouble. You have to get to what you know. This is the I am convinced I know, I'm confident. And once you know your right theology, it helps you to think properly, which helps you to control your feelings. Look at this list. There's not much to say about this list. It's just very simple. That neither death nor life. Now let's go to the end. Neither death nor life can what? Separate me from the love of God in Christ. He bounces back and forth in this chapter, the love of God, the love of Christ. At the end, he brings it all together, the love of God, which is in Christ. It's all the same, Death cannot do it. It can't separate. Neither can life. Nothing you can do as a believer, as a true bought child of God, nothing you can do can ever make him turn his back on you and say, That's enough. In fact, if you're truly a believer, remember what 1 John tells us and and even um, Paul says at the Lord's table in 2 Corinthians 11? Some people sleep. It's code for they've died. There's a sin unto death. If you're truly a believer and you will continue pursuing unconfessed, unrepentant sin, he will finally tap you on the shoulder with death and say, come home. Just come home. Death and life can't separate us. Then he says angels and demons. It says principalities, it's the word for demons, it's, it's a contrast. Angels can't do it. Demons can't do it. Um, I, I remember uh, several years ago that um, book by Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness, which portrays these demons as these, these entities that if you pray hard enough, they'll stay away from you. If you don't, they'll, they'll uh, steal things from you and, and uh, persecute you. That's not the way it works. Even the angels, according to First Peter, will look at your salvation. They're looking right now and scratching their heads and saying, God forgives them for that? Why would they say that? Because he didn't forgive the demons when they fell. They're amazed. They can't separate us. The present and the future, the past and the future can't separate us. Let me tell you some good news. You have skeletons in your moral closet, do you not? Either thoughts or deeds that you've done that have made you... They have become the microphone of the devil in your ear to say there's no way you could be saved because you've done that, thought that, looked at that, saw that, watched that. Not things present or past. Then he says the future. This is encouraging. You will not ever be able to out God's grace. If you are truly secure, you are truly Secure height or depth, these are all created things, so he's probably talking again about anything in heaven, anything in the depths. It could mean any dimension in space or time. And then he looks at this, as this little phrase, nor any other created thing. He says the word other, because we're just a created thing too. He has chosen, I love the book of Hebrews, all the way through, chapter one. He has chosen to redeem some people. No other created thing, angel, demon, nothing, nothing created can come in between the love of Christ and us. Each of these represents a, a power or a reality or a creature or a created thing that could possibly be conceived of that might be able to separate us from Christ's love. And his answer is, it can't. Why? Why? Boy, I hope you hold on to Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8. Oh, what a precious, precious passage. Because of his love. Where does his love most show up? God demonstrated, we could back up. Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. God doesn't love like that. God wouldn't die for a good guy or for a good man. Verse eight says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet good guys, friendly guys, nice people, moral people, no. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What can separate us from his love for us if he's already demonstrated it by dying for us. It's an absurd argument, but Paul understands that we'll feel the pangs of a lack of assurance, and he wants to make sure that we are convinced of the right theology that will bring us peace and assurance when we doubt. He's careful to communicate that this does not mean believers will be exempt or excluded from suffering and difficulties. In fact, he says those sufferings and difficulties ought to work to give us the assurance that God hasn't forgotten us, that he's not loved us, that that he's not stopped loving us. I love Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears our burden. He's aware. He's not over in... Iraq and Iran dealing with persecution of believers over there at the expense of us. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows what's going on. He sees with absolute laser-focused intentionality everything that's going on in your life. And he cares. He bears our burden. Psalm sixty eight nineteen. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Now Let's step back for a moment. We just... Looked at Romans 8 that crescendos in this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Most of our emotional responses to evil, difficulties, pain, suffering fall into two great categories. We either respond badly because we're afraid, or we respond badly because we're mad. Now both of these responses are directly tied to theological doubt. You respond in anger and frustration at people or at God or you respond in fear and despair at people or toward God because of bad, undeveloped theology. Fear has to do with loss. We're afraid we'll lose something. Anger has to do with trust. We're afraid that God is against us. So, Whenever there is the threat of loss, fearful anxiety, your heart can be gripped. And if we fear the loss of anything that we believe will bring us happiness or comfort, pleasure, joy, then the prospect of us losing that makes us wonder if God really cares about us. I mean, think about it we could lose our health, the health of our loved ones, money, possessions. And all of that can stir up anxiety and fear. But all of these fears can be traced to the theological absence in our own heart that God is absolutely sufficient and faithful to his love. God's reference point for communicating his love, you see it in the last phrase of, of uh, this chapter? His reference point for demonstrating his love is the cross, It's Christ. It's Christ's love for us and his death for us In Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He actually reverses it, Christ Jesus, the anointed one, the one from Nazareth, our Lord. So these bad things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, supernatural powers, the past, the future, even death, have no power to separate us from the love of God which is in our Lord Jesus. All of these evils, all of these threats can produce fear and anxiety, but none truly threatens us to the point of God forsaking us. Remember what Paul says earlier in the chapter, verse 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you come to the end of one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And you know what the conclusion is? Base your assurance on what he has done and beware of basing it on what you have done or could do or will do, which is what we studied in the first five chapters, isn't it? That the gospel is God justifying a wicked sinner and dying a death he deserved on a cruel cross and rising from the grave and giving us resurrection power and resurrection hope and in our place, as our substitute, receiving the wrath of God. This ability to compare the centrality of the gospel and our security to the uncertainty of personal hardship was Paul's emotional and rational anchor. You will, if you haven't already, if you don't today, you will need this anchor. I hope you know where it is in your Bible. Let's pray together. The gospel is free to any who will believe. You can have this assurance today if you've never had it before. By believing that he has done what he's done to seal your eternity and your security. Praise God, praise almighty God. It's not up to you or me. If you want to talk about that, our prayer room will be open to my right. McKenzie's are over there waiting. We would love to talk with you about a lack of assurance and how you can be assured. Now this doesn't lead us to the point of saying, well, if we're assured, we can live however we want to. He already talked about that in Romans 6 and 7. This is saying when trouble comes, don't, don't, don't doubt Christ's love for you. Father, what an amazing paragraph in an amazing chapter that my soul needs so desperately. Help us not to look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. These realities that we are overwhelmingly victors and conquerors because of what Christ has done in our stead, on our behalf, and that we could never be separated from your love. What a privilege. Thank you for loving us when we are so unlovely. Thank you for loving us when we are so unfaithful, when we're sinful, when we're. Desperate to find any idol in our life to substitute our heart's desire except for you. Thank you for forgiveness and grace and mercy. Anchor us to these realities. Lord, anchor us to these realities. We pray this because of your Spirit's work in us through the illumination of your word and the confidence of our souls in your work. Amen.